Well, good morning. Uh, my name is John Cherney, and my wife Christina and I, with our son Walter, who's 19 months old, we moved here about three weeks ago. And so over these last couple of weeks, we've just been getting settled and unpacked. And at this point, most of the boxes are sequestered to the garage, so we're starting to feel more at home. Uh, we are so excited uh, to be here and to begin to get to know the IGC community. And uh, we really look forward to getting to worship together in person, hopefully soon. Um, and uh, yeah, we're very excited to be here. Uh, this morning, I'd like to invite you, wherever you are, to turn to Psalm 1. And as you turn in your Bibles there with me, I would like to begin our time together today by asking a question. What comes into your mind when you hear the word happy? Perhaps you think of a time or season in your life um, that everything seemed to be going good. Perhaps you think of somebody that you know who always seems to be in a good mood or whose company you enjoy. Perhaps you think of your favorite place in the world, maybe a place that you've gone on vacations to, maybe your favorite campground. Perhaps you think of the promises that Disneyland boasts of being the happiest place on earth. Or perhaps you think of the future. Perhaps you think of the possibility of a promotion at work or that if you achieve something that it would make you happy. The truth is many of us probably think of many different things when we think of the word happy. So what does the Bible have to say about happiness? The Psalms in the Bible are a collection of songs and hymns that are sung by the people of God. And in them, we find many different genres, much like we would if we were searching for new music on Spotify or on the radio. There are songs of joy and praise. There are songs of lament and mourning. There are songs of life and death. There are songs for individuals and for gathering. And this morning, we're going to be looking at a wisdom song. And wisdom songs are intended to cultivate in the people of God a desired action. Look with me at Psalm 1, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its seasons, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord, and it was given for our good. Would you join me in prayer as we begin? Our Father, our hope is that our joy and happiness might be found in you. This world offers many temporary pleasures. Lord, might that we live for the eternal happiness that is found in following your law. Grant that in this time that your word would be faithfully proclaimed and that we might have ears to hear as your people. Amen. Just a couple of minutes ago, I asked what comes in your mind when I say the word happy. And I shared some examples of potential happiness. Oftentimes, happiness can feel momentary. Oftentimes, our emotions are more complicated than just one simple word. We don't typically think of happiness as a lifestyle. Right now, in the midst of covid shelter-in-place orders, and many protests breaking out all over the nation, how can we as Christians talk about happiness? What type of happiness are we to have in our lives? Here is this song that speaks of a happy person who delights in the law of the Lord. And the psalmist, just like us, knew a world of brokenness and despair. And throughout history, God's people have sung this song in good times and in difficult times. 
Because in the Psalms, the people of God, we, we can find comfort and wisdom for all of life. In the Psalms, we find the whole range of human emotions all brought in prayer, praise, and lament to our God. So this morning, we're going to focus on one big question as we study Psalm 1. Who is truly happy? And we're going to find uh, our answer to this question in three parts. Uh, C.S. Lewis is a personal favorite of mine. Uh, C.S. Lewis, in his preface to a book called Paradise Lost, uh, begins with this quote. The first qualification for judging any piece of workmanship from a corkscrew to a cathedral is to know what it is, what it was intended to do, and how it is meant to be used. So as we begin, I thought it would be helpful to label what type of psalm we are interacting with. And as I previously said, it's a wisdom song. So as we read it, there are elements that we find similar to books like Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and James in the New Testament. See, wisdom literature functions to teach the people of God, as some have defined it, skill in the art of godly living. So if we follow Lewis's advice in understanding the intention of something, it can really help us here to apply this psalm to our lives. If you think of your local library, there are many different sections of genres. There's a history section, cooking, law, maybe a theology section if it's a good library, uh, a large children's section, and many more. And when we read the Bible, there are many different genres we encounter as well. And if we were to label wisdom literature in that local library or bookstore, we might be tempted to label wisdom literature as personal development or self-help. But wisdom literature belongs in the lifestyle section of the bookstore or the library. The intention of the psalm is that our lives and imaginations would be shaped as we read or sing it. That we might praise our God with the whole range of human emotions. And this skill in the art of godly living or this lifestyle section of the library teaches us how we are to live in light of being God's people. So when we sing or read the Psalms, just like the Israelites, we are intended to long for them to be a reality in our lives and in the life of the people that we're in community with. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. The psalmist writes, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Throughout this psalm, we see a contrast between two different types of people. Let's begin with this: what I've labeled as the truly happy person. The opening word of this psalm is blessed. And the Hebrew noun is often even translated into English as happy. For example, if you have an ESV the, uh, in Deuteronomy 33, verse 29, Moses writes, Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, the shield of your help and the sword of your triumph. This blessed or this happy man is different from the hashtag blessed that you might see on somebody's Instagram or Facebook with a photo of their morning cup of coffee. This blessed or happy person refers to the status of someone that is chosen by God. And this celebrates how the truly happy someone is with the idea that God showers his people with favor and nourishment. This psalm celebrates the person or the community that seeks to follow the Lord with their whole heart. Now it uses a male example here, and this does not exclude women from the blessed or happiness Rather, in keeping with the common style, this is meant to be a concrete example, trying to hold up the idea of an individual 
a particular person, a godly individual as an example for others to imitate. So what do we know about this happy person? Well, this happy person refuses to walk in the counsel of the wicked or to stand in the way of sinners or to sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, these three character types that we see in the text denote people who do not follow the lifestyle that God established and called his people to in in his covenant. The happy person is those who have embraced God's grace offered through his covenant from their hearts. And this righteous status reveals itself in how these people live. This is not speaking of a perfect person, but rather of someone who seeks to follow God in their daily life. In this case, the ways that this happy person follows God in their daily life includes meditating on the law of the Lord in order to believe its promises of grace by faith and to seek to shape all of their life in light of the promises of God. Now, the second type of person that's going to be contrasted throughout this entire psalm is the wicked, the sinner, the scoffer. So who is this person? Well, the, the wicked sinners and scoffers are anybody not following God. And there's an increasing level of sinfulness in the terms wicked sinners and scoffers. And we see this by the increasing loyalty metaphors that are used of to walk with someone, to stop and stand with someone, or to even sit down with someone. While there's little difference between wicked and sinners, scoffers in the Old Testament, particularly in the wisdom literature, is somebody who not only rejects God's word and his law, but openly and willingly mocks it. And here is where we see this contrast lifestyle. To walk, stand, or sit with such people is to listen to their values, entertain their values, and embrace their values. Or to walk, stand, or sit. And this happy person refuses to walk, stand, or sit with them. This does not mean that Christians do not interact with those who don't know the Lord. This means rather that our identity cannot be shaped by them. Just as for Israel, their identity could not be shaped by the scoffers who openly mocked the leadership of Israel and their God. Instead of walking, standing, or sitting with the wicked, the truly happy person has their delight in the law of the Lord. This person holds fast to their values. And this happy person's value is the law of the Lord. Now, I imagine almost none of us thought of the word law earlier when I asked what comes in your mind when I say the word happy. The word law for many of us conjures up a picture of rule keeping. But the Bible speaks so much more beautifully when it speaks of the law. The law for an Israelite referred to the first five books of the Bible. And in them, God's gracious initiative from beginning to end It tells a story of a God who made the world and who never gave up on his creation after human sin defiled it and who called the family of Abraham to be a vehicle by which he would bless the nations, a God who redeems his people out of slavery, a God like Exodus talks about the the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands The laws and rules that we find in the Pentateuch, this first five books of the Bible, serve to regulate and protect the life of God's people so that their community is safe and healthy. The the piety and the humanity of its members might actually flourish in how God has designed us to live. And the corporate witness is meant to attract the blessing that God's people receive to the outsiders. From this perspective, the law is a pure gift given by God. It's gracious in its action. And not just the formal laws like the Ten Commandments, but even the stories. 
In the pages of the Bible, we come to a greater understanding of who our God is and who we are to be as his people. An ethics class I once took asked an interesting question that might help us illustrate this. They asked the question, what comes first, character or duty? Or in other words, do we first know what type of person we are supposed to be and then discover what we're supposed to do from a place starting with character? Or do we find out what we're supposed to do and then just become the person who does it, being duty? Now, this question led to a lively discussion in our classroom, and I'll spare you some of the details and just share some of the conclusions that we drew as a class. If we focus only on duty, we live a life that says, just tell me what to do. And this would be like me asking the question, uh, today's Father's Day, happy Father's Day to the fathers out there. Uh, What are the five things I need to do to be a great father? And we see articles like this all the time on the internet for just about any subject. The five ways to get rich quick, the five tips and tricks for teaching your children at home during quarantine, the five ways to have a healthy marriage. And the issue is that the just answering that duty question It doesn't address our affections. It doesn't address what we care about. It doesn't address the values that we have in our life. And the driving force becomes getting a task done. What boxes do I need to check? And this works great for things like improving your golf swing or learning to do geometry. But they do not address the whole person. So what happens then if we focus on character first? On that big question that it gives, who should I be? This is the question that we find the wisdom literature in the Bible often addressing again and again. This idea of who should I be? Who should the community I surround myself look like? For example, in Proverbs 10:5, it says, He who gathers in the summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. And this applies to more than just families who labor on a farm. It begs the question of us as hearers, what type of child do we want to be? Do we want to be the child that neglects their duty or the one that fulfills their duty? It ultimately doesn't ask the question of what they're doing, but implies the question, who should you be? What type of child do you want to be? And we begin to see that these questions cannot be taken apart of character and duty. But the question of who should I be will always lead to actually answering that lifestyle question of how should I live in light of who I am? And so we can also think of it like this. If you're playing basketball and you injure your hand, what are the first words that come out of your mouth? Or if you trip while carrying the groceries into the house and you smash the carton of eggs, what comes out of your mouth? In those moments, we don't stop to ponder our duty or what we should do. Instead, we see the overflow of emotions and it often reveals our character. This is why our character leads to our duty. Because when we learn to love what God loves and hate what God hates, when we allow ourselves to be formed by his word, we begin to understand better who we are, and then we can better understand what we should do. Or to put it another way, we can only understand who we are when we've understood whose we are. And this is why the truly happy person refuses the counsel of the wicked who deny the instruction of the Lord. This is why the truly happy person does not stand idly on the path with the sinners who do not follow the Lord. This is why the truly happy person does not sit with the scoffers who openly mock and reject God's law. And it's here that we can find the first answer to our big question for today of who is truly happy. And we see that the one who is truly happy is the one who delights. 
This is a contrast of the values and guidance of how someone lives their life. The truly happy person guides his or her life by God's instruction rather than by the advice of those who reject that instruction. So how can I make sure I form the right values and beliefs and morals and protect myself from the false? The answer we find in the Psalms here is delighting in God's law. And this means that we must learn how to love what God loves and hate what God hates. So what does it look like to delight in God's law? Well, there's those three refusals of the truly happy person. Um, they, they refuse to get their values, beliefs, or guidance from these others who deny God's truth. Instead, the truly happy person finds their values, beliefs, and guidance from the law of the Lord. And the choice the truly happy person makes is the basic orientation of their life. This is why wisdom literature is the lifestyle section of the bookstore or the library. This means that no aspect of the truly happy person's life is strictly secular. This is a lifestyle. Following God just can't happen at moments. Rather, we are to be shaped and formed by his word. This means that we can fulfill our labors to the glory of God whether we're a plumber, a teacher, or a preacher. In every situation, the truly happy person wants to know what pleases God and to do it. This is not a walking around with your head in the clouds day and night and not actually being um, present with people. Rather, this is thinking of how to apply God's word throughout all of life, to be someone who is formed by his word. So some questions for you guys then to to think this through adults who are the voices that you listen to what ideas are you finding delight in what are you learning to love how are the voices and ideas shaping your worldview students who are the people that you shape your life around who are you following on social media or watching on youtube do those voices honor god's word Children, what are the things that you love? How are your imaginations being shaped? Are you learning to love what God loves? The reality is that we, we are always being called to find our happiness or to love so many things in our life. And to have delight in the law of the Lord means we need to be reading it. That's how scripture is formative. We see in the pages of scripture that we were intended for something greater than a world with sin, death, and division that comes across our phone screens on Twitter or the news. And in a fallen world, we find that often our affections are after so many different things being bombarded by ads. And we need God to teach us through his word, to teach us the things that he loves and to learn to hate the things that he hates. We need our hearts and minds to be transformed by the gospel. And here in this psalm, we see that this truly happy person finds their delight in the law of the Lord day and night. Perhaps you are someone thinking that meditating day and night might seem like something for scholars or pastors or people that just aren't so busy. Perhaps you're someone thinking, John, if you could only see my calendar, how could I delight day and night on the law of the Lord? Maybe it sounds extreme to you. And we see this similar direction given to a general in the Old Testament named Joshua as they're preparing to enter the promised land right after the death of Moses. And God says to him, this very familiar passage, only be strong and courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. 
Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Joshua was not a scholar or a pastor or even a prophet. He was a busy general. This is not just a lifestyle for some, but this is to be the lifestyle of everybody who follows God and to be the thing that shapes God's people, his church. So what does it mean and actually look like to meditate on God's law? Uh, Pastor Tim Keller from New York gives this really good definition of meditation. He says, meditation is the practice of first reading and knowing what God says in his word. And second, fixing that truth in your mind and heart. And third, speaking that truth to yourself throughout all of your life. So first reading and knowing God's word, fixing that truth in your mind and your heart. Scripture memorization is a huge one there. And third, actually speaking that truth to yourself throughout your daily life. Day and night include all of the mundane moments of life. And two of the most mundane things I can think of in my daily life is diapers and dishes. No matter what seems to happen, there is always another diaper to change or dirty dishes to clean. So how can each of us delight and meditate on the law of the Lord, even doing something as mundane as changing a diaper? In the mundane moment of life, such as changing a diaper, we can remember that this small action is an action of love and care. In these moments, whether you're a parent, grandparent, sibling, aunt, uncle, cousin, niece, nephew, what you actually do is join in the raising of that child. And in that, you give a selfless act of love that is one of thousands. And this simple action, we can even see as a reminder of our own dependence, like a helpless infant to be made clean by Christ Jesus. The one who delights is the truly happy person. The beauty of the gospel is that this includes all of our life. The mundane moments of life can be given to God. Let's continue through the psalm and see how our answer deepens. Look with me again at verses 3 and 4. Here the psalmist gives us an example. And he says, He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So here we find two agricultural examples that describe the effects of two different kinds of people. The first is the image of a tree in a dry climate, which nevertheless thrives because of its constant supply of water. The nourishment that this tree receives from the water is a metaphor for the person who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. As we have seen, this includes all of the aspects of the person's life, even the mundane. But here we find out more about this truly happy person. This truly happy person is rooted in the law of the Lord and continues to find nourishment to continue to yield fruit year after year. And in all that the tree does, it prospers. A tree bears fruit, not for itself, but for others. And thus we can recognize that when the truly happy person prospers, it is not for himself or herself only, nor is it prospering materially. But this prosperity is bringing benefit to others and it can be seen like fruit on a tree. In Hebrew poetry, to prosper or to succeed carries with it an understanding to accomplish what is intended. And the second image that we see here 
um, is juxtaposed to the tree and is the chaff. Now the chaff is likened to the wicked, the sinner, and the mocker, or the scoffer, and is not like the beneficial tree. Instead, they're like chaff, husks, the straw that's removed when you're threshing grain. See, the chaff is lighter than the edible kernels, so when a farmer would thresh the wheat into the air, the wind would hopefully drive away the chaff, and it would just be left there on the ground or gathered up to be burned. This chaff is useless. It's good for nothing. And, but the tree bears fruit, which brings benefit, and it can be seen, and the chaff is good for nothing. A way we can picture this, um, a book that I remember reading as a child, is Shel Silverstein's The Giving Tree. First published in 1964, this story tells a fictitious relationship between a child and a talking tree. Over and over again, the child goes and asks the tree for something. And at first, the boy asks for leaves from the tree to make a crown, and the young boy would climb and swing in the branches. And then when he grew hungry, he would ask the tree for apples to eat, and he would take naps in the shade of the tree. Then as he grew older, as a teen, he wanted money. So the tree gave all of its apples to the boy to go and sell and get the money. Then as a young man, he wanted a house, so the tree gave him all of the branches to go and make a house. Then as a man, he wanted a boat, so the tree gave him its trunk. Then as an old man, he wanted a place to sit down, and so the tree gave this stump, its very own stump, as a place to sit. See, we're not called to fail to take care of ourselves like this tree in the giving story. This tree in the story destroys itself for the benefit of another. We're not called to do that. We're called to be rooted and firm and nourished so that year after year we produce fruit. We are called to be nourished and rooted firm and steadfast in that way. And so from that lifestyle, we can benefit and actually care for others. This illustration in the the psalm that the psalmist gives is the truly happy person is like that tree that's planted and nourished, both in good times and in bad times. And an identifying characteristic of this person is that they actually care for and benefit the community. The Old Testament wisdom literature almost always has in mind the good of the whole community of the people of God. And here's where we find our second answer to our question. Who is truly happy? The one who cares for others. There is a strong contrast between the tree and the chaff, the blessed and the wicked, the happy and the sinner. And this illustration helps us see the effects of their lives and the impact that it has on the community. The chaff is of no substance, but the tree offers fruit and provides substance. The truly happy person draws refreshment from God's word and actually cares for others. The truly happy person is the person of substance. The truly happy person from this solid foundation blesses others. So what does this mean? How can we be like a tree that is nourished and cares for others? First, we must be nourished. We must delight in God's word and meditate on it day and night, as we've already talked about. Only from this lifestyle can we actually care for others in a sustainable way. So what are the ways that we can be nourished just to flush that out more? Well, we can be nourished by God's word through reading, through knowing it, through scripture memorization, gathering in small groups and sharpening one another and living life together, forming good, close friendships where you share not only the good of life, but also the bad and being able to speak truth into each other's life, gathering for church and hearing the word preached and singing songs together and encouraging one another, partaking in the Lord's Supper. What are the ways that we can care for others? 
we can start by caring for our closest neighbors. And I mean this very literally geographically. Your closest neighbor is your spouse, your children, your roommate, or your family. Even now, months after quarantine, we can seek to care for one another and encourage one another. Think with me. What does it look like to care for those in your home? Maybe it's growing in patience or answering with a softer tone and showing, showing the heart that has been transformed in that way. Or what does it look like to care for the neighborhood or community that you live in? Maybe it's spending time in prayer for that place or pursuing conversations with neighbors that you maybe just wave at in passing when walking the dog. We have seen that the truly happy person delights in the law of the Lord and that they care for others. Lastly, this psalm provides us with a contrast that gives us the outcome of the lives of the blessed and the wicked. Look with me again at verses 5 and 6. The psalmist writes, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We see the results of each person's lives. The wicked and the sinners and the scoffers will be removed from the congregation of the righteous. Before the judge, they will have, in our similar phrase, not a leg to stand on. And they will have no place among his people. The wicked person's lifestyle has displayed their heart. As Ecclesiastes says in chapter 12, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The notion of judgment distinguishes the true people of God from everyone else. Their lifestyles can be seen. Their lifestyles have different results. So here we hear something of an invitation. Don't you want to be like the person who is known by God? There's an assurance and a certainty that we see in verse 6 when it says, The Lord knows the ways of the righteous. To know is more than to be informed. It includes to care about or to identify with. This psalm identifies that there are two ways to live life and that there is no third option. And this is something we see in God's word from beginning to end. In Deuteronomy, Moses says, "See, on behalf of God says, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. There's two options. Or the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 5 speaks of, Um, either being dead in Adam or alive in Christ. These are either or options. There is no third option. It is either uh, being in Adam and dead or in Christ and alive, or as Moses phrases it, life and good or death and evil. And here in our psalm, we see that this contrast between the outcomes of the blessed and wicked life. We see the results. One of the things that I love reading, um, as you guys are getting to know me better, um, I love reading tales of adventure when it comes to fiction. This hobby began for me as a child when I can remember my mother reading to my sister and I the Chronicles of Narnia for the first time. For me, when it comes to reading fiction, uh, ever since then, I need for it to have knights or horses or swords. And a lot of times that means there ends up being some talking animals at some point. And so throughout my life, I found myself many a time returning to the adventures of Narnia. Our family dog that Christina and I have is also named Diggory after one of those characters. Uh, We love these stories. And this week, uh, an article I saw from the Gospel Coalition reminded me of one of the characters in the book Prince Caspian. Since the book was published in 1951, I hope this doesn't spoil the book for anyone. 
In this story, there's a contrast between two different Narnian dwarfs, one who scoffs at every decision and one who doubts but is still willing to believe. The character Nicobrick, the Narnian dwarf, first shows up in Prince Caspian, and Nicobrick is something of a cautionary tale. In the story, the Narnians have been driven underground and are in hiding, but now the time has arisen at which they will take back their kingdom and seek to free the people of the land. But this character, Nicobrick, allows bitterness and hate to grow to the point that he does not care how he accomplishes his mission. All virtue and joy are gone for this Narnian dwarf as tensions rise. And he begins to interact with all sorts of dark creatures, and their influence hardens his heart. This character is contrasted with a good dwarf known as Trumpkin, or DLF. Uh, for those of you that have read the book, DLF stands for Dear Little Friend. Uh, and he seeks, to, uh, he seeks and desires the actions to the Narnians to actually reflect their true hearts at desiring peace in the land. Nicobrick is someone who accepts the counsel of the wicked, who walks with the sinners, and who mocks the leadership of Narnia. He is like the chaff that is good for nothing. And in the end, we see his character perish with the wicked. The psalm that we've looked at today, this song, this hymn for the people of God um, that we would sing, and we see in the song is meant to actually shape the melody of our life. In some way, it's almost like if you think about like your favorite movie and there's a soundtrack in the background that wells and swells uh, with the actions of the movie. Um, in some sense, we can say Psalm 1 as wisdom literature, as lifestyle literature from the bookstore is actually meant to be something of the soundtrack of your life as someone who follows God. And this is where we hit our third answer to our big question for today of who is truly happy, the one who is known by God. We see the contrasting outcomes of their ways. And this truly happy person is known by God and is numbered with the righteous. Psalms are meant to be sung. So a good question to ask when you're reading the Psalms or when you're preaching the Psalms is, what is the effect if we sing this? What is the effect if we sing this in our life? What if it is the soundtrack of our life, the melody of our soul? And the goal of all the Psalms is that God's people would genuinely embrace the covenant from the heart and worship their Lord. And this nurtures the faithfulness and, and the community. And we ought to desire to be like this blessed and happy person. When people sing this or seek to live by its melody, we own its values Namely, we will want more and more to be the people who love God's word, who believe it, and who understand ourselves to be the heirs and stewards of the grand story of redemption that we see in the pages of scripture, and that we would seek to live in light as God's beloved children. That is why we can have delight in the idea of being among the righteous in Christ Jesus, feeling that nothing can compare with such blessedness or happiness. This is very different from the momentary happiness we often think about. And maybe you even thought about this morning at the beginning of our time when I said the word happy. We receive a righteousness that is not our own by the doing of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther in his commentary on Galatians in his introduction says this beautiful thing. One of the beauties of the gospel is this, that Christ Jesus comes and says, I am what you are. So that in turn, we can say, I am what he is. This describes what is often called the great exchange where we are given Christ's righteousness and he takes our place in the payment for sin. And so as we're singing about this, this blessed man is, who is nourished, clearly we would think of Christ on this side of the new covenant. Perhaps you have a particular song 
that at the beginning of a workout you listen to to inspire you. Perhaps you dance in the kitchen with your spouse to your wedding song to remind you of your wedding day. Perhaps you sing Daniel Tiger songs with your children as reminders in their daily lives. Perhaps you love hearing your college's fight song before a football game because it reminds you of the good old days. Let this psalm be the melody of your life. Let it be the soundtrack. Let it inspire you like a workout track. Let it call you to greater faithfulness like the first dance at your wedding. Let it be a reminder in your daily life like a children's show that gets stuck in your head. Let it remind you of the great things that God has done in the past. When we read the psalms, we can, we can make them the prayers of our own heart. And so I'd suggest pray this prayer often as you read Psalm 1. Lord, make me more of this type of person and protect me from these dangers. Help me to see success the way you do and to trust your promises. There is no other way of happiness, no other worthwhile definition of success. Does your life sing this happiness? Is it the melody of your soul? Is it the soundtrack of your life? This morning we looked at the big question, who is truly happy? And we've seen that the truly happy person is the one who delights in the law of the Lord day and night. The one who cares for others and it can be seen. And the one who is known by God. So we can answer our question more succinctly in this way. This truly happy person is the one who trusts God and who shapes his or her life on the promises of God. Would you pray with me to close? Our Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, even if it is from a distance. Together, your church gathers together to praise your name and to proclaim your word from scripture. Lord, help us to be like this blessed man. Protect your children from these dangers. Help us to see happiness and success in the way you do. By your Holy Spirit, let us trust boldly in the promises of Christ Jesus that we are given. Amen.